There's a lot of places that we can, can put our hope in this life. It could be in institutions or in politics uh, or in programs. But as Christians, our hope is in a person. Our hope is in Jesus who died in our place and, uh, and rose in victory. So let's, let's sing uh, together of him. Alan and the praise team for leading us this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, let's pray. Father, we have a wonderful, merciful counselor. And we come to you this morning in prayer and ask that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you'd open up our eyes that we might behold, as the psalmist prays, wonderful truths from your law. That in this time together, Lord, that our minds uh, would be informed and our hearts would be warmed and our lives might be transformed by your grace and by your Spirit's work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a, a little window in the upper right-hand corner of my well, actually, both computers, my work computer and then my own personal computer, uh, that says that there are updates available. I haven't installed the updates yet because I'm a little reluctant to do so. I had a phone once, and uh, the phone said, updates available. And so I clicked and tried to install the updates, and the updates froze my phone because I didn't have enough memory to handle the updates and basically crashed the thing. And so I was a little bit upset and uh, believe to this day that it's a conspiracy by the higher powers to intentionally uh, make obsolete that which is current in order to create the need for the new. So like many of us, I'm a little bit reluctant to change. A little skeptical of thinking, well, what's in it and what is the unknown that I don't know about? And as we turn our attention back after our Advent season and looking at the Christmas carols from Scripture, back to the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read of an update available. An available update. The writer of Hebrews has spent a lot of time in establishing the reality and the superiority of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And there is this update that's available that says that the old way of being brought into a relationship with God and communing with God has been replaced or is there's an upgrade to a new and better way so that the way of 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 putting our efforts in ourself and our trust in ourself to gain access to God and a relationship with him has now been replaced by God's plan of putting a relationship and faith in Christ at the center there is this transfer of a contrast if you will in chapter 9 between the limitations of the law and the quote-unquote fix of faith so that the work of Christ 
and his death on the cross secured permanent payment for our sin and secured permanent access into a relationship with him, his presence with us. And that is an update that we should embrace, we would embrace. But the writer writes to the group of Hebrew professing believers who were struggling with whether they should embrace the new or really fully embrace the new or just continue to hold on to the old. This morning I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 and we're going to look at these two contrasts. Contrasting two approaches to worship to convince us that the way to God through faith in Christ is an update that's not just available but one that we want to accept. I'm going to read the text and then we'll unpack these two different contrasting approaches to worship. Beginning with chapter 9 verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the, uh, the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the, behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant, which would be the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest comes once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is uh, testifying or signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not with, made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now there it is, the contrast, verses 1 through 7 are contrasted with verses 8 through 14. First we see the deficiency of the old covenant, and there's two aspects of worship in the first and temporary covenant that bring to light its deficiencies. The substance of the old covenant worship is what we're going to talk about. Now what I want to say is that the old is not denounced, as worthless or pointless, okay? This is not to trash the old. What it is to do is that to say that both were involved in divine worship and there was an earthly sanctuary. 
We're going to talk about them in reverse order because the text unpacks them in reverse order. It talks first about the earthly sanctuary and then about the divine worship. And so we see, first of all, the old place of worship. If you take your sermon notes, on the back of the sermon notes, there is a diagram of the old place of worship, okay? And so I'll make reference to it, particularly we're looking at the small box or small rectangle inside the larger rectangle, okay? The smaller rectangle is the temple or the tabernacle proper, but the entire thing is the tabernacle. The old place of worship was a temporary place, temporary part of the the old covenant according to exodus 25 through 40 this was a enclosed structure okay it was a tent shrine at the center of the camp where the children of israel would camp it was established as the place where god would dwell and the place where the people would meet with god all right so the issue is entering the presence of god Enjoying his presence. It was a large uncovered enclosure and the small covered structure inside is the main thing that we want to talk about. The temple proper, that small rectangle inside, was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And it had a covering over it. The larger rectangle had no covering, but it had an exterior barrier around it. All right. Now, if you read in verse 2, it says that there, for there was a tabernacle prepared the outer one, and that's the small rectangle that we're talking about. And it's the, the, small, the smaller outer place is what uh, is labeled in number two on your outline, okay? So you see the smaller rectangle is divided into two parts. The first part is bigger. That's the outer part that's being talked about in verse two. And it was a place that only the priests could enter. They entered it daily, and sometimes weekly, they did it as they offered up sacrifices to the people. On the left side, as they walked in, now the whole thing was facing east. So let's just say that this is east, which I think it is, but uh, it, so they walked in, uh, uh, they walked in face, face the east. So they, uh, they're facing the east, and they walked in, on the left-hand side was this lampstand, okay? Seven candles held. Eat, and they were burning pure olive oil. On the right was a table, and on the table was bread. Bread that was replaced, 12 loaves, every Sabbath day was replaced. Okay, so that's what they put on the table. And in front of the veil that separated this outer spot from the inner spot, there was an altar, an altar of incense. Okay. There was this altar of incense. The table is number six, and the altar of incense, I think, is uh, number, uh, the veil is, uh, altar of incense is number seven on your chart, okay? There was this altar of incense. So just before you walked into the Holy of Holies, there was this altar of incense. Now, what I want to show you is, if you looked at the text we read, it's not exactly the way it says. If you look at verses four and five, it says that having a golden altar, that, uh, the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. That's the second box in this bigger box. Having a golden altar of incense. So this text places that number seven inside of the smaller part. Well, Exodus 30 doesn't place it inside the smaller part. So why did the writer of Hebrews place it inside the smaller part? Because 
This text of Hebrews 9 speaks specifically to what happened on the Day of Atonement, particularly. And on the Day of Atonement, this altar of incense was actually a part of that worship experience. And so the veil, the second veil, was pulled back. And so effectually, you could say that the altar of incense was part of the Holy of Holies in, on the Day of Atonement and in that day only. So because of its close connection with that ritual worship on the Day of Atonement, I think the writer of Hebrews includes it in the Holy of Holies here. Okay? That's my explanation. You don't have to agree with it. The second part is a, fir- is a perfect cube. Okay, the second tabernacle is a perfect cube, 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, and 15 feet high. And inside the perfect cube, we f- find the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant is the manna, Aaron's rod, and the Ten Commandments. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the top, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, was the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there were two cherubim who guarded the presence of God. The mercy seat represented the place, this was God's throne, upon which he would sit and dwell among his people. Now, he didn't do that all the time. He would come in a pillar of cloud, and he would rest there, and then he would leave. But that's where they met God. But only the high priest met God there. And only once a year did they meet God there. And so we see that's the essence of it. Okay, that's all I'm going to talk about it. Some of you people are going, oh, wow, that was really not very interesting. Well, that was the old place of worship, which led to the old practice of worship. If you see, it says in verse 5, it says, and have taken, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in Hebrews 6. Verse 5, 4, it says, having the golden altar of incense and uh, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which the golden jar and holding the manna and Aaron's rod and, the, and which budded and the tables of the covenant and above it were the cherubim and then he says overshadowing the mercy seat and you know then we have these things and we're not going to talk about them much now. Okay? Because that's not the point. There's symbolism in all that stuff. And I could tease out the symbolism of the table of bread and the altar uh, burning the oil and all that stuff. But that's not the point. The point moves on to the practice. In verse 6 and 7 it says, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests were continually entering the outer tabernacle. That is that bigger portion of the smaller rectangle. Offering sacrifices. That's what they did. Continually. Now, there's three important facts that you want to get from verses 6 and 7 that have to do with the old practice of worship. First of all, the priests went in there. Only the priests could go in there. The people didn't go in there. If you look at your little big picture, the only place the people could go, they could go into the bigger enclosed area. They could come up to the altar which was there, and they could offer their sacrifices. The priests would offer their sacrifices. That's all the further the people could go. So only the priests went into the outer tabernacle. Then verse 7. It says, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. So into the outer place, only the priest could go. Into the inner place, only the high priest could go. Now the priest could go into the one place every day. The whole high priest could only go into the actual presence of God once a year. Once a year. Only after he had offered up a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people could he enter into this place once a year. Only the priest could go there. 
then you see that the priest's practice was perpetual. There was nothing final about this. Every day, every day, every year, every year, they were trying to gain access to God, trying to earn God's favor, trying to get their sins atoned for. But constantly, continually, they had to do it, and only the priests were the ones who had the active parts in it. These things, then, then, then you see that uh, it was, so it was perpetual, only the priest could do it, and only the high priest could go in once a year. All of those facts, in my opinion, suggest a deficiency in the old practice of worship. And that's what I want to talk about now, the shortfalls of the old covenant. They're related, related to us in verses 8 through 10. There are several inadequacies in your outline. I think uh, there are five that I list, and so here they are. First of all, there's limited access to God. Look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. What is he signifying? That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. As long as the old system of worship was taking place, you couldn't really get to God. There was really no access to the, the, the Father because of these Old Testament practices. It limits us. The Holy Spirit signifies. Um, I went to a Chicago Cubs game one time. Wrigley Field, okay? Ticket. I didn't know anything about it. The ticket said limited view seating. Some of you have had limited view seating tickets, I take it. Yeah, the only thing that was limited was I couldn't see home plate. I mean... Go figure. You go to a baseball game, what do you want to see? I really don't care about seeing the ivy on the back wall of Wrigley Field if I can't see home plate and see the ball going from home plate to the ivy in the back of Wrigley Field. Limited view seating. Under the old system, there was limited view access to God. Only the high priest, only once a year, actually went into the very presence of God. So the priest had access, but it was limited. The veil separating the two rooms was a barrier to the presence of God. They couldn't go beyond it. Secondly, the sacrifice and service of the priests was ineffective. If you look at verse 9, it says, and which is a symbol for the present time, accordingly both gifts and sacrifices are offered which what? Cannot make the worshiper clean in their conscience ineffective it was only for a little bit it could not make them clean in their conscience thirdly it was incomplete why do you have to keep offering time and time and time and time and time and time again if it accomplished what you wanted it to the first time some of you have nice cars right so you get let's just say you bring home a car that's new or it's new to you okay and you get out the wax, and you start waxing that thing up, you know, and, and you get it all polished up, and guess what? After a year, you probably need to wax it again. And then you wax it again, and then after the second year, you don't really care, so you don't wax it so much. But what does a wax job do? Does it permanently prevent rust? No. It's a temporary fix. You got to keep doing it, you got to keep doing it, you got to keep doing it. Why? Because if you don't keep doing it, the, 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 the rust is going to come. I mean, I've had cars that had undercoating, and yeah, the cars now last a lot longer than the cars then, but I tell you what, moth and rust still corrupt. Uh, that's just part of the fall, okay? It's going to happen. 
Here he says it's incomplete because you have to keep doing it. Fourthly, the old service was strictly external. The text says for food and drink and, uh, and washings and cleansings, the outer workings of the body, there was no heart change in these people. There was nothing that addressed heart issues. You know, I don't know. Do you, you like coming to church just because that's what you're supposed to do? I mean, that gets old. It's like, I have to do this. I have to, if I don't do this, then I'm going to, somehow God's going to squish me like a bug. You know? I mean, what kind of joy is that? Is that what God intended for his people? No. And, and finally, the old covenant worship was temporary. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, and various washings and regulations for the body imposed at the time, uh, until a time of what? Reformation. And in time until we really fix it all up. I mean, some of you have done various remodeling projects in your home, you know. Some of you and us are still in the process of remodeling. Don't you just wait until, can't you just wait until the time of reformation, until it's done, until it's finished, until it's complete? Well, there's an incompleteness to the old system, which leads us to the superiority of the new covenant worship. That's the old, the deficiency, now the superiority of the new. And there's two aspects of worship here under the new covenant that bring to light its superiority. First of all, the substance of the new covenant worship. Look at verse 11. There is a new priest who's better. It says in verse 11, but when Christ, but when Christ, when is that time of reformation? It began with the coming of Jesus. Jesus came into this world not as the people thought he would come, as a king and a ruler, but he came, he was a king and a ruler, but he came as a priest. And he came as a superior priest and a better priest. That's the Messiah of the good things to come. The good things to come were immediately what he brought in his death, resurrection, and that is the salvation of mankind. They ultimately refer to the good things to come when he comes a second time. And Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 speaks of that. There's also a new place of worship that's better. There's a new priest that's better. There's a new place of worship that's better. When he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come in verse 11, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, but indicates a contrast. In contrast to the former priests, Christ doesn't serve alone, and he doesn't go into the presence of God alone. He brings his people with him into the presence of God. How much better to join him in the presence of God than to just watch the priests have the corner on the market of being in the presence of God. Into a greater and more perfect tabernacle. This place of worship is far much better than the old place of worship that was confined to a few. I like what John MacArthur says, but our heavenly priest takes his people with him all the way into the sanctuary. He takes us into the sanctuary of sanctuaries, heaven itself. Not the symbolic presence of God, but into the real presence of God. Folks, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are brought into the presence of God. You have access directly 
to the person and the work of Jesus. And Christ takes us there, according to verse 12, the same way he got there. Through his blood. Through his blood. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the priest, the high priest, would take a bull and he would take one of two goats. He would slaughter the bull, he would slaughter the goat at separate times, and he would sprinkle the blood of each on the mercy seat. First, the bull for his sins and the sins of his family, and second, the goat for the sins of the people committed in ignorance, all the sins that hadn't been covered by the daily sacrifices. I mean, this is kind of your uh, trump card, you know, sacrifice, you know, it just covers everything that we didn't get covered in the daily sacrifices. You know, the thing I was struck by, and uh, we shared it in the first service, the blood. And we kind of read over it. You see, the sacrificial system was a visual, visual and a visceral reminder of the consequence of sin. Death. Bloody, gory, disgusting, and real. And we miss it so much. I do. But the old priests went in on the basis of blood of an animal. Our priest went in on the basis of his own blood. He entered the Holy of Holies. And then they'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat to symbolize that the people for whom the animals had been slaughtered, their sins were atoned for. And what those Animals' blood symbolized Christ secured permanently. They symbolized sacrifice and atonement, but it had to be done again. Christ's blood secured it, what they had symbolized. When Christ died, according to Matthew 27, 51, the veil of the temple was torn, rent in two from top to bottom. And folks, this was an act of God because the veil was a thick, heavy carpet that could not be torn. And it meant that access to God was there. The old system was gone that the Spirit had been indicating couldn't be broken. You couldn't get access to God. Now you could. Because of what Christ had done on the cross. And when we by faith apply the blood of Christ to our sins, we're made permanently and spiritually to dwell in the presence of God. We're there positionally, if you read Ephesians chapter 2. He, we're seated with Him in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not seated in heaven. At least I have no delusion that Urbandale's heaven yet. Uh, you know. At least if it is... I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed. I mean, Urbandale's a great place, but if, if that's heaven, then mm, we're, we're in trouble. So, positionally, every person who's a child of God is in heaven. Practically, we experience the presence of God now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not with your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The temple of God is here. It's you, it's me. We have the presence of God. We can enjoy His presence now. 
That's it. And personally, we'll experience it when we're with him in glory. You know, that, and then it all comes together. What positionally true, practically true, is personally true, ultimately in, in heaven. You see, the earthly sanctuary, with its limited access to God, was only a reflection of which a relationship with Christ is the reality. When our girls were young, we had a, a play kitchen in the basement, you know. We had miniature kitchen appliances made out of plastic that had, you know, stickers on them that made them look like the real thing. We had fake food that was the same color and the same texture and the same look as real food. We had molded cans out of plastic and cups and plates and spoons and knives and forks and all of that stuff and let me tell you folks we spent time down there pretending we were in the kitchen all these things were a mere shadow of which the real kitchen was the substance and I would much rather eat real food than plastic bananas I would much rather literally enjoy the presence of God than sit back from afar and wonder how that works, you know. The priest goes in and he does his hocus-pocus stuff and then he comes out or if he doesn't do it right, then he doesn't come out. You know, that's why they would tie a rope to the high priest and a bell on his garment because if he didn't do things right, whammo, he's dead, drag him out and send the next guy in. And you and I have access to the Father that they didn't have. Then there's a new practice of worship, not just a, a, a new uh, place, but a new practice of worship. In verse 12 it says, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Verses 6 and 7 said the priest had to offer up a sacrifice for his blood, and then he had to offer sacrifice for the other people's blood. But this is the blood of Jesus, so don't lose the visceral and visual connection. There was a sacrifice made. Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, beat, whipped, and flesh exposed, humiliated and rejected by his Father so that we could have access to God, we who didn't deserve it. Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for human sin. Notice the text says in verse 12. Or yes, he says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place. Now read the next word. Once. 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 How many times did the high priest enter the holy place? Once a year. Jesus did it. Once. Once for all. This speaks to the finality of the sacrifice. No more sacrifice needed to atone for sin. And this one stuck. There is no necessary perpetuation of it. This leads me to conclude that was the, the new practice of worship. But it begs to talk about the superiority of this new worship experience. And that's the last point of this section. In verses 12 through 14, we see the superiority of the new covenant. Two additional implications of his sacrifice. Notice the text says in verse 12 at the end, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
how long did the atonement of the high priest last in the Old Testament system? One year. One year. If then, but daily they were offering sacrifices. Here it's once for all. Speaks of the sufficiency of the sacrifice. My understanding is that when Christ died on the cross, he purchased the pardon for all sin, for all men, for all time. Sufficient sacrifice. I remember the day that my wife and I paid off our student loans. The debt was paid. Finished. No more slavery of the free. At least to the places we had borrowed that money. The debt had been paid. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the debt once for all. Now, the sufficiency and the finality of a sacrifice is only efficient. It's only applied to those who put their faith or their trust in what Christ did. We must accept that sacrifice as the payment for our sin. Even though I believe it's sufficient for all, that doesn't mean everybody's saved. No, everyone must turn from their sin and trust in Christ and accept that which has been paid for their sins. Secondly, through, the faith, through faith in Christ, we can experience an eternal, an internal, rather than a temporal and external cleansing. Look at verse 9. Remember we said that at the end it says, it cannot make the worshipers perfect in conscience. But now you look at the end of verse 12, and he says, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. That's it. Verse 13, he says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit who offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the ritual surrounding the Day of Atonement and the regular sacrifices brought temporary external cleansing. It cannot make the worshiper perfect. Um, Anybody ever paint over a, a rust spot? You know? Or you have a water spot on your ceiling, and you get some kills, and you paint over that, you know? Did it fix the rust spot? Did it fix the, the water damage? No. But it sure disguised it. The sacrifices day by day and every year only covered it for a while. It didn't deal with the heart issue. And what Christ did on the cross is he dealt with the heart issue. Verse 14 reminds us that the, of the inability of the animal sacrifices is eclipsed by what Christ accomplished when he sacrificed his own blood. Absolutely destroys what the previous system did by providing eternal redemption to cleanse our conscience from dead works. In the words of Isaac Watts, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. What are the dead works? What are the dead works? This is the stuff that dead people do, spiritually dead people do, okay? 
It's the attitudes and the actions of spiritually dead that pollute the soul, promote the self, and end up producing guilt. I don't know about you, but people walking around in life are hungering for a heart that is clean. And they don't know where to go, so they, they try drugs. Or they try alcohol. Or they try, you know, multiple partners. Or they try to self-medicate with some other system. And it's the pride and the jealousy and the greed and the self-centeredness in our soul that rears its ugly head. And, and Christ dealt with it all. He, he, he made us clean from all of that garbage. And freed us from the consequence of sin. Only the blood of Christ will satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. Cleanse our conscience. Remove our guilt. And bring us into relationship with God. I don't know about you, but I am reminded daily of my sin. And I am so grateful for a God who paid the price that gives me the power to be victorious over that sin. I don't have to live with the guilt that I am going to pay for it or that he's going to squish me like a bug because I made a mistake. No, I can run to him and my father and say, I'm sorry, I know that you've paid the price for this and I don't want to live like this anymore. By your power, give me grace to move beyond it. This is what he did. That we might serve the living God. <laughs> you see, here's the other thing. Here's the kicker. We have not been saved to sit and soak. We have been saved to serve. And God has prepared us for these works. He saved us so that we would serve. That's Ephesians 2 verse 10. And so this is not just sit around and lock arms and sing kumbaya and aren't we good and everybody else is on the outside. Poor them, you know, wish that wasn't me, but I'm glad I'm in. We're not the country club, remember? We are to take care of our own, but we are also to live for others and to serve each other and to serve others, to serve the living God who died for us. We don't deserve it. Now dare us act like we are so good that he did it just for me. I kind of get annoyed uh, by songs like that. You know, that, that saying, oh, it's all for me and all for me. No, it's all for him. But by the grace of God, there I go, chasing after other things. I am here strictly by the grace of God because I was not running after him. He was chasing after me, grabbed me by the nap of the neck, looked at me in the eye and said, listen, buddy. If you know Jesus, that's you too. And he is a God who is worth serving because of what he's done for us. Oh, I don't want to chase baptism and confirmation and catechism and going to church and putting money in the plate and all that stuff, which is very good stuff, can be, but it doesn't get me to God. It's the result of having come to God. That's what he says. See, Christ makes possible for us to experience full pardon and his presence now. The question is, will we accept it? During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, George Wilson, a postal clerk, robbed a federal payroll from a train, and, the, and in the process, he killed a guard. The court convicted him and sentenced him to hang. Because of the public sentiment against capital punishment, however, a movement began to secure a presidential pardon for Wilson. 
was his first offense, and eventually President Jackson intervened with a pardon. Amazingly, Wilson refused it. Since this had never happened before, the Supreme Court was asked to rule on whether someone could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's decision. A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives to it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. George Wilson, as punishment for his crime, was hanged. Pardon, declared the Supreme Court, must not only be granted, it must be accepted. I say to you this morning, have you personally accepted the pardon that Christ purchased for you when he died on the cross. And if you have not, I invite you to do so now. Admit that you are a person deserving of God's judgment. Believe that Jesus Christ paid the debt that you deserve to pay. And confess him as your Lord and Master and the one whom you trust his death as a payment and you will serve him. You can say it however you want to. Just communicate that to God. And if you are one who's accepted his pardon, then rejoice as we, as we break this bread. And as we drink this cup, we're reminded of the permanent pardon purchased on Calvary. The permanent access, the insured access into the presence of God that he provided for all who believe. It is something to rejoice in. Yeah, we should reflect and get our hearts right. We should receive it with joy. And then we should leave this place to serve him. Dead conscience, conscience dead, you know, the old good works, dead to all that stuff. Now we're living for, for God. So I invite you to trust in Christ as Savior. I invite you to rejoice in the triumph you have in Christ as Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this bread, this cup. I thank you for the Savior whose body was broken and blood was shed so that each one who accepts the pardon would be free from the consequences of sin, free from the power of sin over us every day, able to live and make choices that resist the Deeds of the flesh. And I pray now that you would encourage us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing you in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. In Jesus' name we pray. 